and welcome to episode seven of Coastal Crimes. I'm your host, Jen, and this week I am taking you guys to Los Angeles, California. Now, the case that I'm bringing you today, I've always kind of known a little bit about it, but I haven't ever done like a deep dive into it until now. And there was so much more to it than I ever even knew was possible. But before we get to the case, let's do some fun facts about LA that you possibly haven't heard before. Now, the City of Angels is famed as the land of the nation's television and film industry, but there is more to LA than its trove of celebrities, beautiful beaches, horrible traffic, and amazing weather. As much as you may think you know about the city, here's a list of fun facts about Los Angeles that you probably don't. Los Angeles was first named El Pueblo de Nuestra Señora La Reina de Los Angeles del Rio de Porciuncula by the first settlers, which translates to the town of Our Lady Queen of the Angels of the Porciuncula River. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue like Los Angeles or LA, does it? And I can see why they changed it. There are more cars there than there are people. No wonder it is impossible to find parking. LAX is the second busiest airport in the U.S., so that's why your car is constantly caught in that slow-moving carousel of H-E double hockey sticks. The iconic Hollywood sign actually said Hollywood Land from 1923 to 1949. It was originally built as an illuminated advertisement for a real estate development of the same name, which is slightly less of a magical feeling than a tribute to the glory of Hollywood. The bougie Beverly Hills Hotel was originally a lima bean ranch. The Getty Museum hires goats during the spring to keep their grounds well-maintained. And little fun fact about me, my mom did this when I was a teenager. She actually got a couple of teenage goats as well to keep our lawn maintained. But instead of maintaining it, they just ate everything. Um, The film industry ended up in Los Angeles for a hilarious reason, apparently to get away from Thomas Edison. Since New Jersey resident Edison held the majority of the country's film patents, anyone who wanted to get into the business of making movies went west to avoid Edison knowing and suing them for using his intellectual property. That is quite literally the only reason the movies are made out there. But the weather isn't bad either. LA beats San Francisco on this one. Eldred Street in Highland Park is the steepest street in California with a 33% elevation grade. Can anyone say skateboarding? I used to do that when I was little. There are hidden tunnels under Los Angeles, at least 11 miles worth. They run from Spring and Temple Streets to First Street and Grand Avenue and have been used to transport prisoners, bodies, billions of dollars, and, of course, during the Prohibition era, liquor to the underground speakeasies. Post the earthquakes and most recently 9-11, the majority of them have been closed up, but rumor has it that a few openings still exist in certain locations. Now, before you go and plan your scavenger hunt, let's take a dive into my case. This week, I'm going to tell you the story of Sherry Rasmussen. On February 24th, 1986, Sherry Rasmussen was living a seemingly perfect life. She was young, newly married to the man of her dreams, and she had done well in her nursing career. 
She had a strong network of close friends and family who would describe Sherry as a bright light for those around her. Sherry was scheduled to give a motivational speech at work that day, a managerial tactic that she did not feel was effective. So to avoid it, she told her husband she might call in sick using a back injury she had incurred while doing aerobics the day before as an excuse. I mean, who wouldn't, right? John, her husband, kissed her goodbye, promised not to be home too late, and left for work. At 9.45 a.m., a neighbor noticed that the Rutten's garage door was open with no car visible. And I will say Rutten is John Rutten's last name. Rasmussen is Sherry's name before they were married. I'm not entirely sure if she ever took his last name. I couldn't find that out. All right. Anyway, about 15 minutes later, John made the first of several unanswered calls home. Sherry's sister also called without an answer. And at noon, two men who the neighbor believed were gardeners in the compound gave her and her husband a purse they found that turned out to be Sherry's. A maid cleaning at a nearby unit said she heard something that sounded like two people fighting and then something falling at around 12.30 p.m. John had been trying to reach Sherry all day to check in on her. Initially, he just assumed that she went to work. But when he called the hospital, they told him she hadn't come in. He still wasn't alarmed, though, more annoyed that she hadn't told him she went out. She was always on his case, asking him to remember to turn the answering machine on when they left the house. Because in those days, that's the only way it would record a message. So he was surprised that she hadn't turned it on. When John arrived home that evening, he found his garage door wide open and broken glass on the driveway. He also noticed that the BMW he bought for Sherry as an engagement gift was missing. So he assumed Sherry backed into something with the car and it fell, broke the window, and of course grew increasingly annoyed. Because of Sherry's morning plans, he also found it strange that she would have later gone out without letting him know. But it doesn't occur to him that all of these odd happenings could point to something more sinister. He starts to notice more out-of-place things. The door that entered the house from the garage was slightly open. The living room was a disaster with furniture thrown all over the place. Now things are beginning to take shape for John. He sees Sherry lying motionless on the floor, still in the nightgown she had been wearing when he left. Her face had been beaten so severely she was almost unrecognizable. And when he touched her... Her body was stone cold. There were signs of a struggle. A porcelain vase broken on the floor, a bloody handprint next to the home alarm's panic button, and a toppled credenza. It appeared that someone had at least attempted to bind Sherry at one point. She had defensive wounds and a bruise on her face that appeared to have been inflicted by the muzzle of a gun. A distraught John calls 911, and when the operator was trying to figure out the situation, John was unable to speak. Police quickly arrived on the scene and felt that Sherry had fought until her last breath. John told police he last saw his wife when he left for work that morning, and they noted that his wife's death completely incapacitated John. They believed his reaction was sincere. Sherry had been a brilliant woman. From 16, she went straight into college and discovered her love for nursing. She lived to help others. 
By her late 20s, Sherry had worked through the ranks to be the director of nursing at Glendale Adventist Medical Center, giving presentations and teaching classes for fellow nurses. It was at a college party that she met John, a mechanical engineering student at the time. Their relationship moved quickly, and he moved into her condo. The two became husband and wife in November 1985. But they hadn't been together very long when some odd things began happening in their relationship. After their engagement party, a woman had shown up at their house. She had been wearing revealing workout attire and was holding skis and asked to speak to John. John explained to Sherry that the woman was an ex-girlfriend named Stephanie Lazarus. He told her that they were still friends and that he had promised Stephanie he would wax her skis. Sherry was furious that this woman felt it was appropriate to just show up at their home unannounced. And this was also the first time hearing that her fiancé had this ex-girlfriend in his life. She told John that she didn't want him to contact Stephanie. And of course, John told her that she was being ridiculous and to stop being jealous. When Lazarus came back a few days later to pick up the freshly waxed skis, she showed up in her full police uniform, complete with a gun. Also, the complete opposite of what she showed up in the time before. Sherry was completely unnerved to find out that Lazarus was a cop, and she later would tell her best friend that she had felt this weird hostility from Lazarus. After that, they would randomly bump into each other very often while Lazarus was on patrol. Sherry confided to her father that she thought Lazarus was stalking her. A few weeks went by when Lazarus went to the hospital that Sherry worked at and told her that she and John had had sex after the engagement party. Lazarus explicitly said, if I can't have John, no one can. It was only a few weeks until their wedding and Sherry was once again blindsided by this stranger who kept inserting herself into her life. Sherry confronted John about it immediately, and he had admitted that it was true. He had slept with Stephanie, but it was the last time. He hadn't ever since then. He said it was for closure for Stephanie. He reassured Sherry that he didn't want to be with Stephanie. He wanted to be with her. But Stephanie was becoming desperate to break up the couple. So Sherry told John that if they were to get married, he needed to cut Stephanie out of his life and she wasn't to come by their home anymore. John complied with Sherry and their wedding proceeded. Now, Stephanie and John had met while in college at UCLA from 1978 to 1982. They lived on the same dorm floor. They had been friends for a very long time and they often worked out together. Stephanie was very athletic, competitive, and intelligent. Both of them were avid athletes. Stephanie played on UCLA's junior varsity women's basketball team. And Stephanie and John kept a large group of friends. They all had similar interests in sports and partying. Eventually, John and Stephanie became friends with benefits, and they had an ongoing relationship for several years. Stephanie would steal John's clothes when he showered and take photographs of him naked while he slept. They both dated other people, but would end up gravitating back to one another even after college. John had always considered the relationship very casual. Just kids fooling around was how he later described it to the courts. In court, he later testified that he had had sex 20 to 30 times between 1981 and 1984, but that she was never his girlfriend. 
After John graduated, he accepted a job with hard drive manufacturer Micropolis. In 1983, Stephanie applied for the police academy, and this came as a huge surprise to her family. But the training academy was close to where John was working as an engineer. It allowed her to remain close to John. She had thrown John a surprise 25th birthday party, and it was here that John had told her he was seeing someone, Sherry, and it was serious. Stephanie was devastated. She wrote to John's mother in August of 1985, I'm truly in love with John, and the past year has really torn me up. I wish it didn't end the way it did, and I don't think I'll ever understand his decision. According to her journals, she wrote at the time she was in a deep depression. She wrote, I really don't feel like working. I found out that John is getting married. She had genuinely believed that one day John would come to his senses and they would be together. It was after Sherry and John's engagement party that Stephanie begged John not to marry Sherry and professed her love for him. John said that he had told Stephanie he wanted to be with Sherry. But, as we know, the two ended up sleeping together that night to give her closure. But later that night, Stephanie awoke a fellow officer that she roomed with to commiserate. Stephanie was determined that she could break up this happy couple. Even after John's wedding, she was obsessed. She would write about John daily, convincing only herself that Sherry was the only thing in their way of happiness. During the initial investigation, it was presumed that there had been a massive struggle. The police agreed that the attack had lasted over an hour and, mo and had moved from the upstairs staircase into the living room. Sherry had several bruises on her face and body, suggesting that she fought back to her attacker. And Sherry was a very fit and tall woman also. It would have been challenging for an assailant to subdue her. The police speculated that Sherry had been hit over the head with a flower vase, giving the attacker enough time to get the gun out, wrap it in a quilted blanket to muffle the sound, and deliver the fatal shots. Sherry had been shot three times. All of them were fatal, consistent with how police trainees learn to take down enemies. Police theorized that two burglars had broken into the condo shortly after John left for work, and they were unhooking electronics in the living room when Sherry surprised them by coming out of the bedroom. They had a witness who described seeing two Latino men in the area, so a narrative formed that two illegal immigrants had killed Sherry. The only things that had been taken were Sherry's car, which had been recovered two weeks later with no evidence, and Sherry and John's marriage license. LAPD's detectives investigating the case quickly concluded that Sherry had been surprised and killed by burglars. Sherry's clothes, a bathrobe, nightgown, and underwear suggested that she was not expecting visitors. Although the maid who heard the fighting earlier that day reported it, she said she did not hear any gunshots. She thought the whole event had been a dis domestic dispute and did not feel the need to call police. It appeared that the burglars had been in the process of taking electronic equipment when Sherry surprised them, and as a result, jewelry had been left behind and the vehicle taken as a getaway. When police did find the BMW, it didn't have any evidence to contribute to the investigation. So, lead detective Lyle Mayer did consider other possibilities. He quickly ruled out the grieving husband, John Rutten, or Rutten, 
as a suspect. Sherry's father, Nels Rasmussen, and his wife, Loretta, told Detective Mayer about Stephanie Lazarus's harassment and that he made a note of it. John later told the police that he and Rasmussen never discussed Stephanie Lazarus, which goes to show that her dad knew about Stephanie from Sherry and not from John. Detective Mayer's partner, Steve Hooks, found a bite mark on Sherry's arm unusual since bites during struggles are much more commonly inflicted by women, while the majority of burglars are usually men. But because men have bitten opponents during fights as well, the burglar theory stood. After Sherry's murder, friends and family were shocked that John wasn't more involved in the investigation to find her killer. John had quit his job and ended up moving out of L.A. a few months after his wife was murdered. The suspected burglars that were thought to be responsible remained at large, despite a follow-up newspaper story eight months later and a reward offered by the Rasmussen family. The LAPD, preoccupied with the violence resulting from gang wars and the crack epidemic plaguing the city at the time, was unable to devote much more attention to the case. The lead detectives on the case were also older, highly overworked, and covering multiple homicides and break-ins at that point. Without any good leads or suspects off the bat, cases were stuffed into evidence lockers and detectives would move on to other matters. Detectives at the Van Nuys office were, the Rasmussen's say, often unhelpful when the family called, hanging up or putting them on hold. Sherry's father, Nels Rasmussen, and the police were convinced that John was holding back information. John did say that he had told detectives to investigate his ex-girlfriends, but still, records show he didn't point detectives in that direction until years later. Sherry's father had become her champion, the only one continually pushing police officers to look into her case. In the weeks leading up to her death, Sherry had told her friends an unsettling story about an ex-girlfriend of John's coming to her office and telling Sherry that, quote, if I can't have John, no one can. And when this marriage doesn't work out, I'll be there to pick up the pieces, end quote. A coworker told police that Sherry couldn't go anywhere without his ex-girlfriend showing up, often in uniform and armed. Sherry had been suspicious that Stephanie and her husband were still having an ongoing intimate relationship, but John always denied it, accusing Sherry of being too jealous. John didn't support Sherry's feelings of being fearful of Stephanie, and Sherry had told friends she was thinking about breaking up with John before their marriage because of it. Sherry had also told her father a few days before she was murdered that she was being followed by a person dressed in men's clothing but had piercing eyes that could stare through you. A year after the murder, the frustrated family reiterated their offer at a press conference and called for more action. Nels wrote to Daryl Gates, the then chief of the LAPD, about the possibility that Stephanie Lazarus might have been involved. Detectives told him he was watching too much TV. He continued to publicize the, re the reward, and later worked with the short-lived television series Murder One on a segment inspired by the case. Nels, in particular, was unconvinced that Sherry, who was six feet tall, had a large frame, and was in good physical shape, had been the victim of a botched burglary. It would have been a struggle for anyone to subdue her in close quarters, 
and Detective Mayer did tell him at one point that the event may have lasted an hour and a half, which is a long time for burglars who are after valuable items in the home. Also, whoever shot his daughter had fired directly into her chest at close range and took the trouble to muffle the shot with the quilt, which suggests the killing was deliberate and not the accidental byproduct of a struggle. Detective Mayer eventually retired, and the new detective assigned to the case told Nels that he was unable to follow up on Mayer's notes and did not think any new leads would emerge. He noted the case file was missing a lot of information. Nels was rebuffed again in 1993 when he offered to pay for DNA testing on the evidence of the murder. Now that the technology was available, he was told that the police had to have a suspect in order to proceed with the testing. Even though Stephanie Lazarus briefly reunited with John Rutten in 1989, Detective Mayer's notes show that John had called him and asked if he was absolutely sure there was no evidence linking Stephanie with his late wife's death. The only leads noted in the case were the ones that had gone in the burglary direction. Sherry's father, John, and Sherry's co-workers had all given statements, but officers never followed up. In the meantime, Stephanie Lazarus continued working with the LAPD. She went on to start her own private investigative firm, Unique Investigations. Stephanie had always been described as a cop's cop. She had put in tons of hours to work her way up the ranks. In 1987, she earned medals, including one gold, at the World Police and Fire Games in San Diego. In 1993, after stints at the department's Drug Abuse Resistance Education and Internal Affairs Divisions, she became a detective. Three years later, she married a fellow officer and adopted a daughter with him, moving back to Simi Valley. At work, she became an instructor at the police academy. John Rutten eventually remarried as well. He did not pressure the police as his former father-in-law was to keep investigating Sherry's case. Stephanie rose through the ranks to be a highly respected detective. Stephanie lived a seemingly average life, having a successful career, attending school events, and preparing items for bake sales. But Sherry's father never gave up on her. Nels badgered law enforcement to reopen the case and do DNA testing. He was unsuccessful for many years, and after many appeals, he was able to get the DNA evidence collected at the murder tested. At this point, there was no longer any denying justice. The evidence was too much to push off. The DNA sample had been taken from the bite mark on Sherry's arm. Sherry's investigation was sloppy and negligent police work that was so poorly handled it looked like it could be a cover-up. That was the only explanation as to why Sherry's murder went unnoticed for almost two decades. In the late 1990s, once DNA evidence began being critical for convictions, the LA Police Department formed a new unit that looked through forensic evidence collected from cold case files and ran them through the various databases to see if anything came of it. Among the evidence was the evidence collected from the Rasmussen residence. It was starting to look that they might gain some progress on the case. However, it was not until 2004 that another criminalist, Jennifer Francis, was able to analyze it. Francis noted that not all the evidence was in the box. The DNA evidence had been checked out by an officer in 1993 and never put back. She spent days hunting for it, 
and after a week, she found it in the back of the coroner's freezer. She ran the samples through and reaffirmed that most of the DNA evidence was Sherry's. However, the bite mark sample was determined to be a female, and it didn't hit any matches in CODIS. This completely changed the theory that Sherry had been murdered by two men. Francis had begun to go through the rest of the evidence on the case. Several years later, Francis claimed that, unusually, she had access to not just the sample, but the entire case file, which had been given to her to help her decide which other samples to analyze. Now, this was not normal during that time. Upon discovering that the biter, and likely perpetrator, was female, she reviewed it and came across a report of a third-party female who had allegedly been harassing Sherry at her job and residence before the murder. When she asked her supervisor if this woman had been investigated, her supervisor responded with, Oh, you mean the LAPD detective? He elaborated that the woman, a former girlfriend of the victim's husband, was in fact a current LAPD detective, but she's not a part of this. He insisted that the case was simply a burglary as the department had long concluded and she was ordered to leave the case alone. No other detective would pursue the case, and the evidence went back into the files. By 2009, crime in Los Angeles had declined enough from its earlier levels that detectives began looking into cold cases to increase their clearance rates. In Van Nuys, Detective Jim Nuttall and Pete Barba reviewed the Rasmussen file and found it interesting enough to be worth pursuing. The thing that drew them to the case was the DNA evidence pointing to a female assailant, contradicting the long-held belief that two men had killed Sherry. They decided to start over completely. The two noted that nothing of monetary value was removed from the home. The condo was in the middle of a gated complex surrounded by other units and highly visible in the daylight. Sherry's jewelry box, an inviting target for a burglar, was in plain view on her dresser and hadn't even been touched. The home alarm system had also not been engaged or tampered with, and there was no evidence of a forced entry. It was clear to them that this had been staged as a burglary to throw off a police investigation. The evidence pointed to the struggle beginning upstairs and continued down the stairwell and into the living room. The equipment that the burglars were supposedly there to steal was neatly stacked at the top of the stairs. If, as the evidence suggested, the struggle between Sherry and her attacker had begun upstairs and then continued downstairs, that stack would likely have been knocked downstairs and scattered everywhere. This would have meant that the burglars piled it after Sherry was dead, when in reality, an actual burglar would have fled the scene immediately after the shooting. They would not have taken time to tidy up or start stacking things and then leave after shooting someone. The forensics reinforced this theory. There was also a bloody thumbprint on a record player in the stack, and it had taken minimal scrutiny to see beyond the staging. It had no print, which means whoever touched it was wearing gloves, but the blood was Sherry's, also suggesting the equipment had been stacked after the struggle and shooting. It had been left behind, the detectives realized, to make the crime look like something other than what it really was. To them, it further validated that the killer was familiar with police investigations. 
From the four bound volumes of the case file, they developed a list of five female suspects. Detective Nuttall was shocked to discover that one of the five female suspects was the ex-girlfriend of John, and she was in law enforcement. Not only that, but he was familiar with the now detective Stephanie Lazarus. She currently outranked him and was part of the high-profile commercial crimes division. As one of the two detectives in the nation's only full-time unit devoted to that specialty, Lazarus had gained some local media attention when she and her partner had recovered a statue stolen from Carte Circle. To better understand the field, she told a local newspaper she had begun learning to paint. Off the job, Lazarus had been active in the Los Angeles Women Police Officers Association and organized child care for families of officers. She also made chocolate-covered cherries and homemade soap for her neighbors in Simi Valley for Christmas. Since Lazarus was still with the department, Nuttall and Barbara realized that they would have to proceed carefully. Still, they ranked Lazarus as the least promising of the five suspects, since they did read in the files that she and John Rudden had ended any relationship they had had over the summer before the murder. Nuttall and Barba's investigations soon eliminated all but one of the other women. The other, a former co-worker of Rasmussen's who had had some disputes with her, was eliminated by a covertly collected DNA sample. With only Lazarus left, they kept their investigation a closely guarded secret. Not only did her husband also work in the commercial crimes division as a detective, she may have had other friends who could have tipped her off. If she were the killer, this could have improved her defense. If she were not, then they could have unintentionally smeared a fellow officer who had had an unblemished service record over the course of her career, with no disciplinary investigations or civilian complaints. So, they only referred to her as number five, worked on the case after hours or behind closed doors, and developed cover stories to explain why they wanted to look at personnel records for one particular officer from 20 years ago. While looking at her records, Nuttall and Barba noticed that Lazarus had always kept tabs on the Rasmussen case, occasionally checking out evidence or asking investigators if there were any leads. This was seen as strange since Lazarus had never been involved in the investigation, and given her personal history with the victim, she shouldn't have been handling anything involving the case. The detectives began looking into other aspects of Lazarus's life during the mid-1980s. Another detective recalled that at that time, most LAPD officers had preferred a 38 as their backup or off-duty carry gun. In fact, they were required to only purchase weapons compatible with the Federal Plus P ammunition that had been used in the murder. State and departmental records show that Lazarus had indeed owned a Smith & Wesson Model 49 caliber 38 at the time and reported it stolen to Santa Monica police, but not to her own department's armorer, 13 days after the murder. Since the location where Lazarus had reported it stolen from was near a popular pier, they assumed she had thrown the gun into the Pacific Ocean. Without the weapon, DNA would be the only definite way to connect the crime to Lazarus. Nettle and Barba theorized what they would do if they were to commit a murder. They thought that it would be best to do it on a day off, 
and departmental records showed that Lazarus had indeed been off the day Sherry Rasmussen was killed. And they wouldn't be able to use their duty gun because losing that would open up an investigation, and penalties for losing a duty gun or failing to prevent its theft were severe. So it made sense to use a backup gun like Lazarus's 38 caliber. They also considered their knowledge, having worked only a few years as a patrol officer. And a working patrol officer would know just enough to make a crime scene look like an interrupted burglary to satisfy an overworked detective. Nels told Detective Nuttall about Lazarus's continued contact with his daughter, which had not been in the files, despite him mentioning it frequently during Detective Mayer and Hook's interviews. Realizing that Lazarus was now their prime suspect and should have been questioned since day one, the detectives informed their superiors and arranged to discreetly collect a voluntarily discarded DNA sample from her, knowing they could do so without having to get a warrant which would have let Lazarus know that she was under investigation. So, while off-duty running errands, they saw her toss a drink cup into the trash. The cup was retrieved and tested next to the bite mark sample, which was a partial match, but enough of a match to get an arrest warrant. The detectives began to plan for a quiet arrest. Everything needed to be handled carefully. They didn't want her to be tipped off. Rob Bubb, the homicide detective supervisor at Van Nuys, began letting his senior officers, all the way up to Chief William Bratton, know of the case along with his senior prosecutors from the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. It was transferred to the Robbery Homicide Division, which handled many of the department's high-profile cases, including the Art Theft Bureau where Lazarus herself worked. On the day of the arrest in June 2009, a dozen officers were brought into the department before dawn. After being briefed on a search warrant, they were told would be executed outside the city, but with few de details beyond that, they went to wait near Lazarus's home in Simi Valley in that city's Metrolink station, where Lazarus commuted to the city. Then, they waited. Meanwhile, Lazarus began her commute. Specific detectives were assigned to handle the arrest all of them selected because they didn't have a personal connection to Lazarus. They decided to call her down to the Parker Center, the department's headquarters. Chief Bratton ordered that this location be used because Lazarus would need to surrender her weapon to enter. This would minimize the possibility of her harming herself or other officers when she was to be arrested, immediately following the interview, as was the plan, or when she realized that she was the prime suspect. The detectives chosen to interview her, Greg Stearns and Dan Jaramillo, told her they had someone in custody who wanted to talk about an art theft. Her interrogation did not go well. She denied any and all involvement in Sherry's murder. After Stephanie Lazarus had checked in her gun and entered the interrogation room, they explained that this was really about some loose ends they were trying to tie up in the Rasmussen case since her name had come up in the investigation. They claimed they wanted a private setting because, while John Rutten was an old boyfriend, Lazarus had been married to someone else for a long time and they didn't want her private life to become the subject of office gossip. 
Stearns and Jaramillo knew that they would have to tread carefully, since Lazarus herself was well aware of police interview techniques and her rights to silence and legal counsel, which she could invoke at any time. They rambled and digressed from the subject at times, sometimes discussing unrelated police business, but always coming back to Rasmussen. Lazarus claimed to recall little due to the intervening years, but gradually revealed more and more knowledge, including acknowledgments of her visits to the John Rutten condo and a specific encounter at Sherry Rasmussen's office. But this all stopped when she accused her colleagues of considering her a suspect. The detectives mentioned it was possible they had DNA evidence from the crime scene and requested DNA samples from Stephanie. That was the turning point for her. Lazarus declined and tried to leave the room. She was then arrested and charged with the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. Once she was arrested, her home, car, and office were searched. Police located her journals from the mid-1980s. In the journals were numerous mentions of her love for John and her despondence over his engagement to Sherry, and no mentions of her gun ever being stolen. Her home computer showed she continued to do internet searches on John Rutten on several occasions during the 90s. As the investigating detectives had been, many LAPD officers were stunned at the idea that Lazarus might have murdered someone. Fellow detectives recalled her as vivacious and supportive, although some recalled that her behavior when angry had led some to refer to her as spazarous behind her back. She tended to be a little bit erratic, apparently. A case she had been developing from her art theft work with elder abuse and real estate fraud aspects had to be dropped since it was highly unlikely that it could be prosecuted successfully if the lead investigator herself was facing a murder charge. After her arrest, Lazarus was allowed to retire early from the LAPD, which was nice of them, and was held in the Los Angeles County Jail. A bail hearing was not held for almost six months. Judge Robert J. Perry surprised both sides when he set the amount at $10 million in cash, well above what the defense had suggested, and more than twice what the prosecutors proposed. The case against Lazarus was very strong, he said, and thus she might as well be at risk to flee the country or obtain weapons through her husband. Lazarus's lawyer, Mark Overland, said the judge did not understand the case well and contrasted the high figure with the $1 million set for Robert Blake and Phil Spector when they were charged with murder. Several months later, her brother claimed she was not receiving adequate treatment for an unspecified cancer while in custody. Overland then attempted to kill the trial with a bunch of pre-trial motions. He said that the investigators should have identified Lazarus in the beginning, which violated her right to due process. He also said that because of the time that had passed, this negatively affected evidence and he was unable to effectively search for other subjects. For example, he used the fact that one witness who saw the argument between Sherry and Stephanie, the one where Stephanie supposedly said, if I can't have John, no one can. Well, this witness had passed away in 2000. Following that, Overland attacked the search warrants served on Lazarus and stated the evidence obtained from them should be suppressed. He said that since Lazarus moved into her residence after the murder took place, it was not relevant to the case. 
and the affidavit used to get the warrant didn't provide a good enough reason that evidence would be found in those places. All his motions were denied, but Judge Perry did admit he was uncomfortable with some of the seized evidence, including her computer, since she didn't have them at the time of the murder. But he felt that since an experienced judge granted and issued the warrants, he is applying the good faith exception and all the evidence could be admitted. Next, Overland tried to ban the use of statements Lazarus made during her interview with the detectives. He cited the Garrity warning, which states that under California law, government employees are compelled to answer questions as a police officer, entitling her to automatic use immunity for those answers. But the prosecution argued back that that law only takes precedent when there is an active administrative proceeding, which did not happen until after Lazarus was arrested. And Judge Perry again sided with the prosecution and denied Overland's motion. Lastly, a year later, Judge Perry denied Overland's last attempt to stop this trial from happening. Overland tried to say that the new product used to type Lazarus's DNA, Minifiler, was different than previous technology and that she should be entitled to a Fry hearing, which just determines what evidence is sufficiently scientifically valid. Perry stated that it was just another method used to identify DNA and it was commonly used in law enforcement. So finally, Lazarus's trial began in early 2012 and the story made for a tremendous media spectacle. Many of its elements, a love triangle with a woman scorned, a cold case unsolved for over 20 years, and the accused killer turning out to be a police officer herself, were similar to the plots of popular television police dramas and reality shows. Just think of this week's Oxygen Snapped case. In this case, there wasn't a lot of evidence. Most of the evidence had gone missing over the years or never collected in the first place. Once Lazarus was arrested, a better DNA sample collected was a complete match. The prosecutors argued Lazarus's motive for the murder was jealousy over Sherry Rasmussen's relationship with John Rutten. In his opening argument, prosecutor Shannon Presby summed up the case as a bite, a bullet, a gun barrel, and a broken heart. That's the evidence that will prove to you that defendant Stephanie Lazarus murdered Sherry Rasmussen. A highlight of the case was John Rutten's testimony. Several times he became emotional and wept, particularly when recalling his courtship of Sherry. He did allow that having sex with Stephanie while he was engaged to his future wife was, quote, a mistake. In cross-examining the police detectives and other technicians who had originally investigated the murder, Overland stressed the original botched burglar theory and pointed to evidence such as the similar burglary that happened shortly after, that he claimed supported it. He also highlighted evidence that was not analyzed, such as a bloody fingerprint on one of the walls, to suggest that other suspects had not been adequately excluded from consideration. He questioned whether it would be truly inferred from the weapon used that it was Lazarus's lost gun, as 38s were widely used at that time. Since the DNA from the bite mark was the state's smoking gun, 
He attacked it vigorously, pointing to improper storage procedures and a hole the tube had left in an envelope that he said would have allowed Lazarus' DNA to be added to it long after it had been collected. During the two days in which he presented his case, Overland focused on the prosecution's theme of a lovelorn Lazarus, presenting friends of hers who denied that she was showing any signs of violence or sadness over her failed relationship with John at the time of the murder. Excerpts from her journal were offered as evidence. Lazarus wrote of dating several different men, none of them John Rutten. But she also wrote of John Rutten, which, of course, he did not mention. He reinforced his attack on the evidence, calling his last witness, a fingerprint expert, who said that some prints at the crime scene did not match Stephanie Lazarus. It was also revealed that Rutten and Lazarus had kept in touch in the years following Sherry's murder. They had even vacationed in Hawaii together, although I couldn't find out exactly when that was. Both the prosecution and defense reiterated their themes in closing arguments. After showing the jury of eight women and four men photographs of a beaten, bloodied Sherry Rasmussen, prosecutor Paul Nunez told them, it wasn't a fair fight. This was prey caught in a cage with a predator. Overland dismissed the entire case as circumstantial fluff and fill, except for the compromised bite mark DNA sample. He moved for a mistrial after Nunez reminded the jurors that no alibi had been provided for the time of the murder, since the defendant's refusal to testify cannot be held against them. But, once again, Judge Perry denied it, saying he did not take that as directly suggesting Lazarus herself had refused to testify, so her Fifth Amendment right had not been violated. In March, after several days of deliberations, the jury decided to convict Stephanie Lazarus of first-degree murder. Later that month, she was sentenced to 27 years to life in prison, and she is currently serving her sentence at the California Institute for Women in Corona. After credit for time served before the trial, she will be eligible for parole in 2034, when she is 79 years old. As evidence was introduced at the trial, it became apparent that not all the evidence available and in possession of the LAPD had been found. Recordings and transcripts of interviews were with both Nels Rasmussen and John Rutten that discussed Stephanie Lazarus were absent from the file, although both remembered them when they were called to testify. And other aspects of the missing interviews are alluded to in other interviews in the file. The only mention of Lazarus during the initial investigation is a brief note of Detective Mayers where he reported that John Rutten had confirmed that she was a former girlfriend. Two lawsuits were filed based on these allegations. One by Nels and Loretta Rasmussen, alleging that the LAPD actively protected Lazarus and that the fact that Lazarus was able to access the evidence throughout the years was wildly inappropriate. A lot of the evidence that had initially been in the file went missing, with only one DNA sample remaining. Their suit was eventually dropped in the court. They appealed, and a judge ruled that they would have needed to have filed the suit on or before the year 2000. And then the California Supreme Court declined to hear the case in 2013. The other suit was a whistleblower suit by criminalist Jennifer Francis. 
Remember her? The one that was told to drop it by her supervisor because they had already ruled it as a burglary? It alleged negligence in the department, accusing the department of purposefully destroying evidence. She also claimed that because she kept digging into the Rasmussen file, she suffered retaliation from her supervisors until she agreed to drop it. The harassment allegedly continued after Lazarus's conviction. However, there was no evidence to corroborate her statements, and a judge ruled for the city in 2019. Finally, Stephanie Lazarus filed for an appeal in 2013, and I am not going to bore you with the details because it is a bunch of legal jargon, but just so you know, the courts unanimously upheld her conviction, so she will be in jail until 2032 when she is 79 years old. And that's all for my case this week. Hope you guys enjoyed it, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Coastal Crimes. Check out my website and blog at coastalcrimespod.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Coastal Crimes Pod. If you have questions or recommendations to share, please email me at coastalcrimespod at gmail.com. Episodes are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support and get a shout out on air, please visit my Patreon page to keep this show going.